Let's pray. Lord, as Gentiles who have been grafted into um, your covenant family through the promise that is given to Abraham, we ask that you would indeed be our God, that we would be our people, that you would not uh, hold the record of our sin and all with all its legal demands against us, but Lord, that you um, would forgive us and bring us into the glory of eternal life, in knowing you and your presence and dwelling with you and in having um, the great opportunity here in this world to cry out to you from all uh, the dark places, from the valley of the shadow of death, from our anxieties, our, our troubles, um, the things which are known and unknown, the things that we have even difficulty uh, expressing in words what the problems even are. You, you know these things and you watch over us and you are at work. Lord, we ask that you would give us rest as we consider your presence, as we consider your glory that comes to us through the cross of Christ. May we cling to him and know him more and more, even as we hear your word read and preached this evening. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you would uh, please remain standing and turn your attention with me to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when, I came, when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings nor their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, Describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. 
And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, that is, the whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad, with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits, with a breadth of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, with a breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth, four cubits. And from the altar hearth projecting upward, four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, twelve cubits long by twelve cubits broad. The ledge also shall be square, fourteen cubits long by fourteen broad, with a rim around it, half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall, sp shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock, without blemish. Blemish shall it be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. You may be seated. Well, here in Ezekiel chapter 43... We see a remarkable turn of events. Back in the earlier part of Ezekiel, there was a moment when Ezekiel was brought to Jerusalem, was shown the temple, and saw all number of abominations going inside, false idols and things had been set up, the worship of God, and of course, uh, the kings were nearby, right, who had constructed uh, their own houses um, next to the temple of the Lord, bigger houses, by the way, more magnificent, more wonderful. 
but kings who had not led the people in the ways of the Lord, but instead committed all kinds of abominations and created for themselves a own kind of cult practice. In this new age, this new salvation that God promises to bring in which he will no longer allow the people to um, uh, to be defiled, in which he will purify them and draw close to them. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. He wants them to understand that presence, and he does so through a vision, another vision given to Ezekiel of a temple, a temple that um, is not um, here on the earth, but is in this vision. And he's given a vision of this temple, and he's allowed to see things and hear things and understand things that are meant to be for the people of God, to understand him and themselves in him. As he gives them this, as he describes this, um, the temple and the altar and things around it, um, we are told here in this passage that it is a, a kind of teaching tool. Right? That's the point of this. Right? God is describing this in such a way that we might learn from it. And that's what we'll try to do this evening. So in verse 10, remember in chapter 43, we read, As for you, son of man, describe, it, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be shamed of their iniquities and that they may measure the plan. There is a way in which they look at um, the temple, these requirements regarding the, the altar, all these things that are described to Ezekiel, and there's something supposed to affect them about this. Right? So if you hear this and you say, nothing affects me, well, that's a good sign that there's something to pay attention to, something to learn. So I want to begin at the beginning and um, spend a little bit of time first thinking about the description and then drawing some conclusions. So first, the scene is set at the beginning here, in uh, the beginning of chapter 43, this man um, that has been leading him and measuring him leads him to the gate, the gate of facing east. And he, we read in verse 2 that the glory of the Lord, uh, the glory of Israel, the, uh, sorry, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. This is a, a reminder that when uh, the spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord evacuated the temple, he went out this same way. You might remember that it happened in kind of a halting and progressive way as the Lord left, and now this time it's just a rushing in. It's a really marvelous picture. And the sound of his coming was like the sound uh, of many waters. Um, this reminds me of a video I once saw of a flash flood. Um, I've never been in a really bad flash flood, so I'm just experiencing this through a video. Maybe some of you have have been in these kind of situations. But in this video, there's these guys standing out in the desert, and they're just standing out there. It's totally dry. Nothing's going on. And then all of a sudden, you hear this sound like a train. It sounds like this huge engine just rushing, rushing. You don't see anything. You don't see anything, but you're hearing it, and it's getting louder and louder and louder, and then it goes by and just takes all kinds of trees out and everything. It's, it's impressive. It's amazing. That's the kind of thing that he hears here. The sound of, like, coming like the sound of many waters. 
like this giant, powerful force. It's audible for him. A lot of times we talk about um, bringing glory to God and glorifying God. This is a little different here. This is the glory of the Lord in this noble way. It's noble to Ezekiel's ears. He hears the glory of the Lord. He also hears the voice of the Lord. Right? As, remember, as the man leads him into the temple, and then he hears a voice coming from the temple. Right In verse 6, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Much like Moses hearing from inside the glory of the Lord this great cloud of lightning and flashes, he hears the voice of God. Ezekiel has a similar experience here. A reminder of God's great presence and closeness to his people right here close to the one who is described as the Son of Man. Ezekiel hears the voice of the Lord, and yet it is veiled. He doesn't see uh, the Lord himself. At least uh, not as he knows himself. What else does he see, though? What does he see? Well, he hears this rush of many waters. Uh, He sees light, right? He sees light. The earth shone with his glory. When Moses came down off the mountain, you remember uh, when he came off Mount Sinai, what was going on with his face? It was shining, radiating with the glory of God. A similar thing happens at the Mount of Transfiguration um, when uh, Jesus is shining (laughs) with the glory of God. Here it is um, the land itself. What a spectacular thing that would be to see the land shining and, I guess, radiating light, something like this. Uh, It's amazing. And we are reminded uh, of something that I I do want to pause and spend some time on um, in verse 3. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal. So there's a few times in Ezekiel where he has this moment, this vision of the Lord, and the vision of the glory of the Lord in particular. And um, as within uh, at least one other place, uh, he falls on his face, uh, similar to the way Isaiah does in um, Isaiah 6. Well, because he references this, and because it's been quite some time since we've read it, and it's so key and so important, I do want to turn with you to chapter 1 and read with you what it is Ezekiel's talking about. So when Ezekiel says, I saw what I saw back then, we're going to spend a moment and remember what it is he saw, what it is he's talking about. So as we read this passage, um, as, we, as, we, as God gives to us this description of his own glory, um, let us read it with humility and praise and thanksgiving and fear and hope and love. 
I'm going to begin in verse 4. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it. And fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. The four had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, There was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness, was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. 
And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the clouds on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man. I'll stop there. This amazing picture for us. I wanted to just read it because I really don't have words to summarize it um, well. Although I may need to learn how to do that. But this, the glory of the Lord is truly humbling, I think. It softens our hearts. It um, reminds us that we often think of God in such non-God-like ways. These ways in which he's expressing and he's describing to us, even they are approximations. You hear it when he's saying, and from the thing that looked like a waste, <laughs> right? he's struggling in some ways to describe, um, uh, struggling in some ways to describe what it is. Not struggling in other ways. This is the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit capturing exactly everything perfectly as we need to hear it. But that sense of distance that you hear between what he sees and what he's able to describe, and even the thing that he's able to describe from what is there, reminds us of the great transcendence of God. At least it should. This great throne of God, you read the large part of that first chapter of these these, um angelic creatures and the spirit of God moving within these kind of gyroscopic wheels where this, this, uh, this great chariot is moving around the world in any direction that God desires it to go with these magnificent creatures, right, um, going every single which way and that this Lord directs everything perfect and magnificent, gleaming all over the place. And you think you're done. And then he describes this expanse and he says, and up above all of that, you have this throne with this one with the likeness of a human on it who's shining and this rainbow all around. It's beautiful. It's mag- majestic. It's full of splendor and, wo- uh, uh, and glory. And glory, the glory of the Lord. This is what he first sees at the Kebar Canal. It's that same chariot that uh, describes the Lord's power and his awesomeness, his protection, his, his ability to move and to act. Um, that then um, later becomes as a, as, a, as a chariot of destruction. And now he's coming into the temple on the glory of the Lord in, in Ezekiel 43, um, similar to what happened before here that we just read at the Kebar Canal. And it's, you hear those same descriptions, right? The, the, like the sound of many waters, or to use the language of chapter 1, also like the sound of a, of a mighty army, the glory of the Lord uh, comes in. Except here, instead of coming to destroy uh, the city or leaving the protection of the people, he is entering the temple to say, 
this is the dwelling place of me and my people forever. And just so we have a sense of the presence of the Lord in all of his transcendence, I, I love this detail in, chapter, or in verse 7 when he says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. This temple, this temple in this vision with all of the Lord's glory, it's just where he puts his feet. This thing does not, as Solomon said, contain the Lord. It does not hold him like it held the idols. It's just his footstool. That's all it is. As majestic and powerful and amazing as we consider all these descriptions of the temple and then the glory of the Lord in it, it's just, it's just where he puts his feet. And nevertheless, it's enough. It's a more than enough. It reminds me of the, of the, of, of the woman that touches to just touch Jesus' the hem of his garment. To just be a little bit close to the Lord is enough. And even, not even to be physically present there. Like the man who asked Jesus to heal his daughter. And he's like, you don't even have to go. <laughs> just say the word. The presence of the Lord. It's our hope. The Lord with us is our life. It's our everything. And here he is promising that no more will he be separated from his people because of their defilement. Something is changing. Something is happening. A, a new thing is, is on the horizon. And it comes out in the details of the temple itself. Having read a lot from chapter 1 and also 43, I won't reread all of 43, but just make a few notes. Number one, the altar is moved to the center of the temple. When we compare it with the previous temple, the sacrifice for sin is right there in the middle of it. A second thing to note is that, again, as much as holiness was important before in the designs of the tabernacle and the temple before, even more so now, the Lord keeps turning up the dial on this point. I'm not sh sure what the best way to put that is, but I hope you understand. The way he puts it, which is no doubt the better way, <laughs> is in verse 12, when he says, the law, this is the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of a mountain, all around it shall be most holy. The holiness that was contained, we could say, and humanly speaking, and was uh, described most in the, in the innermost parts of the temple, is now being expanded out in such a way that all of the temple is included, and the whole top of the mountain, the whole top of the mountain is called most holy. No more kings living next door. Just we're, not, we're done with that. <laughs> I will be your king. I am the one in the chariot. I am the one that is ruling over my people. I will be your Lord and your God. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain, all around it, shall be most holy. And then we come to the ark, and so fascinating, we have the ark is described in these three, possibly four levels, 
uh, I think probably more likely three, depends on how you take this one word. These three levels, it's, it's kind of this uh, cube shape. It's, it's large. It's about 15 feet high. 15 feet high. So there's, uh, uh, if you remember from the description, um, last time, I think it was, uh, there are these stairs that are ascending up to the altar. That's a tall ladder, by the way. 15 feet up into the air. That's a long flight of stairs. And interestingly, they come, uh, I don't, I'm a little turned, yeah, this is right. They come from the east. Um, they come from the east. Uh, some commentators think that this is a, 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 a counterpoint and a, and a way of keeping them uh, uh, from worshiping sun gods, perhaps. Now, you're not facing the sun and the dawning of the sun. Uh, you're going to the glory of the Lord where he uh, makes himself manifest. In any case, there is this uh, uh, going up to the altar, and he calls Ezekiel, who is called this son of man, one of the, I believe it's the most common way that Jesus describes himself, which is important because when you hear those verses, we want to think about passages like, like this, also Daniel. But he calls to the son of man, and he, he gives Ezekiel this amazing task where he is called to prepare this temple that God has just revealed for, to him uh, for worship. That Ezekiel is to um, uh, purify uh, the altar itself. And we read about that in verses uh, 13 through 17, and then following from there, there's a number of sacrifices, eight days worth of sacrifices, where um, two things will happen. Um, first, the altar will be itself purified, and then the offerings will be made as a way to prepare for the priesthood, so that after those eight days, then the priests will continue after that. Well, one interesting thing to note here is there is a, 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 a sort of tri-level uh, placing of blood on the altar. First, imagine this big square box with horns on the tips of the corners, and the first, he is, he is called to place a blood on the tips of the horns and also at, this, um, at, a, at, a, at the mid-level and then also at the bottom, at the, at the base around the rim. Um, one uh, commentator uh, connects, Zimmerly is his name, he connects this um, to the um, purification and preparation of Aaron if you perhaps remember in the Old Testament, there is blood that is placed on the earlobe, on the thumb, and on the big toe. This kind of um, uh, marking and purifying, preparing the priest at sort of like these every level of his personhood or something like that. And something similar like that is going on with the altar here. It's being prepared. If you go to conduct uh, an important experiment, right? let's say you are a scientist, it's important that your tools are ready, right? If you don't let dust just sort of sit around and things be uh, um, infected, right, or have germs on them or other kinds of things, same if you're cooking, right, you prepare, you cook clean, you ready the tools to do the job. Something similar is happening here. But for, not for cooking or for a science experiment, but for the purification of God's people. He's cleansing um, the altar, preparing uh, the priests 
uh, to, so that all impurities might be removed. In all of this, we are reminded that God's presence with us happens only one way, through the purification of his people. Our presence, our closeness with God, his work in us, his remaining forever only happens when we are cleansed of our sins. And ultimately, this picture of the temple here and the sacrifices and the altar and the glory of the Lord and the presence of God with us is all fulfilled for us in Jesus. Jesus fulfills these things. Let me read a little bit to you from the book of Hebrews that describes these connections at length. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, just a little bit of many places we could read. But in Hebrews 10:11, we read this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Then look at verse 19. We come to a point of application. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Right, the one who fulfills all of these sacrifices and things that are laid out in previous parts of the Old Testament and which are given here in slightly new ways. But because we enter not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus, he says in verse 20, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see, the day drawing near. So as we have, as we, as God gives to us and reveals to us this great vision of his glory, as he points to us uh, to the sacrifice of sins fulfilled ultimately in his son, who himself is described in the New Testament as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature in Hebrews 1.3. This one, our Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who comes to be present with us and draw us close to him through his own sacrifice. We have something very new, a new and better covenant, a new and living way, a such a way that there, we, we have no reason for doubt, no shred of, of anything that would... Uh, uh, that would fall short of a true heart with full assurance of faith. Now, of course, that's not always true when we do struggle with these things, but there's no reason for it, no godly reason for it. And when we find ourselves doubting and when we find ourselves struggling, as we find ourselves, uh, for, for example, struggling to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, 
when we struggle to stir one another up to love and good works, when we struggle to meet together and encourage one another and look forward to the day drawing near, God gives us the word of his grace in passages like these. He points us to the temple in the Old Testament. He points us to the fulfillment of that in Christ. And he says, here is Jesus. Here is Jesus. He is given for you so that we may be together. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus became that high priest in a better priesthood. Jesus became the sacrifice for us better than the old sacrifices. In such a way that as we considered last time in Revelation, when the new Jerusalem and the city of God is described, um, there's no temple there. The sacrifice of sin has been made. We are not going to go into heaven and sort of daily try to move into the presence of God because not only the top of the mountain, but the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And we will be perfectly with him forever. So let's encourage one another. Let's read the scriptures and remind ourselves and one another of what God has said, that the day is drawing near And he is surely faithful. The promises that he is making, the visions that he is giving to Ezekiel here, are not based on the works of the people. They're based on the promises of his grace. So we can trust him. We don't have to look to ourselves. All we have to do is look to him, which he himself empowers us to do. Let's pray. Almighty, majestic, most splendorous God, we ask that you would give our hearts assurance of your truth and of your love, of your power, of your goodness, and your forgiveness. We know there is no longer any offering for sin because because Jesus did it all and has sat down in victory at the right hand of God as our mediator as the one who is here to rule and to defend us, to stand and, and uh, in between us and all that would do us harm from within and without. Lord, we ask that as we uh, consider him and his awesome glory, as we look forward to the day when his glory is revealed for all to see, that we would um, hold fast to you, that we would come and remember your glory that we would encourage one another and build one another up, for we are often forgetful. Lord, when you have revealed yourself in these marvelous ways, uh, we confess and, and recognize in ourselves that we think of you far, far too small. When we consider and are reminded of the power and strength of your might, why would we ever, why would we ever doubt you and the things you could do, the extent of your love. And yet we do, Lord. We confess our sinfulness, we confess our weakness, our shakiness in all kinds of things. We ask that this evening you would stir us up, that you would strengthen our hearts and give us confidence in you, our God and our King. Whatever it is we are facing, whatever it is uh, that we struggle with, may we see all things in light of you. And even our own successes, our own little moments of, of human glory, 
May they only redound to you. May they only be uh, reflections of your work in us so that nothing would ever be taken away from you in our own hearts um, and our, of, our, and of, of our faith and our love in you. We ask these things, Lord, knowing that you are good and that you have promised to fulfill all salvation in us. We look forward to that day of the Lord's return and the consummation of the things that have already begun. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.